I will continue reading from Mark's Gospel, picking up where I left off in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, we ask now that You might put Your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the Gospel. That the Gospel might be impressed upon our hearts, that our eyes might be opened to see Christ Jesus and His cross clearly. That You might bring the cross into sharp focus for us today. That we might see that it is the center of our salvation and be the center of the Christian life. This we pray for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. The most important question in your life, the most important question in the world, the most important question in all of history is that question that's right here smack dab in the middle of Mark's Gospel, right there in the middle of Mark chapter 8. It's the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that He is? Then as now, there are many opinions, many answers people give to that question, who is Jesus? Some say He was just another zealous revolutionary Jew. Others see Him as sort of the original hippie, a flower child spreading peace and love and sappiness everywhere He goes. Others see Him as a good teacher. Uh, Still others will see Him as a good moral example. All of those answers stem from either full blindness to who Jesus is or half blindness to who Jesus is. See, Mark has written his Gospel that we might be able to answer this question. This question here in Mark 8, who is Jesus? That is the question Mark wrote his Gospel for us to answer, to give us an answer to that question. He wrote his Gospel to answer the question of Jesus' identity. To show us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God's eternal Son become man in order to fulfill God's promises, to bring in God's kingdom, to rescue us from sin and death. That's who Jesus is. He is the Savior. He is the King. He came to heal us. To heal us so that we can see who He really is. And in seeing Him, knowing Him, know Him, and in knowing Him, have eternal salvation. Mark wrote his Gospel that we might see that Jesus is the crucified King. He is the crucified Savior. 
Indeed, Mark wrote his gospel that we might know only when we see the glory of that man who hung on the tree of the cross can we know what life and history and salvation are really about. But one thing we learn from this miracle story here in Mark 8 is that the healing, that is, the opening of our eyes to see who Jesus is, doesn't come all at once. Like the blind man, our vision gains clarity and focus in stages. It's very interesting. This is the only two-stage miracle we have in all of the Gospels. It's totally and utterly unique in this way. And that makes it especially important. This healing miracle actually explains for us what's happening in Mark's Gospel. What was happening in the disciples at this point. And of course it explains what God is doing in our own lives as well. When we look at this story of Jesus healing physical blindness, we have to know it's really about Jesus healing spiritual blindness. The healing of physical blindness is an analogy. It's a parable. It's parabolic of Jesus doing an even deeper work of healing, healing our spiritual blindness. One thing that we've seen in Mark's Gospel up to this point is that Mark is very blunt. Uh, Mark does not soften uh, any hard edges. And one thing he's really blunt about, one, 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 you know, one area where Mark just tells it like it is, is in showing us how spiritually blind Jesus' disciples were. In chapter 4, for example, we find Jesus teaching in parables. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 and says He's teaching in parables so that seeing they may not see. That's true of the crowds, but it's even true of the disciples. Even though the disciples got the private explanation from Jesus, Jesus would take the disciples aside and give them private tutoring and the meaning of His parables. They still didn't see the meaning of those parables. They were blind what the parables were all about. In chapter 4, verse 40, the disciples are stuck in uh, a boat uh, on a storm. Jesus calms the storm. But there in verse 40, He rebukes the disciples for having no faith. They have no faith. They don't see who is in the boat with them. That the one in the boat is greater than the storm outside the boat. And so He rebukes them for this, for not seeing that. Uh, later on in chapter 6, they cry out with fear when they see Jesus walking on water. They see Jesus, but they don't really see Him. They're blind to who He is. They think it's just some kind of spirit, perhaps a ghost of some sort. They don't see that it's Jesus coming to show His glory to them in the midst of the storm. And Mark tells us this is because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are blind. Chapter 8, they didn't see what the feeding of the 5,000 was really all about. Again, because their hearts were hardened. Jesus says to them, Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? In other words, you're deaf and blind to what I'm doing. Mark does not paint a very flattering picture of the disciples. Now the disciples will come to see who Jesus is, but only gradually. Jesus will heal their blindness, but He will do so in stages. And that's what this miracle here in Mark 8 is designed to teach us. But you know, if you pull back and sort of take a wide-angle lens view, you know, a, 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 a broader view of what's going on, you find that blindness is not only an affliction the disciples share. It, it, it's, it's really it, it's a way that Scripture describes the human condition. All throughout the Old Testament, we find that blindness is 
the problem Israel faces as well as the nations around Israel. All the descendants of Adam have been blinded, blinded to the glory of God, blinded to His truth. All throughout the Old Testament you see this. For example, Psalm 115 says, Idols are blind and those who worship them become blind as well. Isaiah 6, I already mentioned that, is quoted in Mark 4. talks about the ministry of Isaiah there, but Jesus takes it and says that he's going to carry out a similar ministry. The prophet spoke in dark saying so that in seeing the people might not see, in seeing they might not perceive. Their eyes were blinded. Isaiah 29, which is quoted in Mark chapter 7, is all about Israel's blindness, how Israel has blinded herself. Uh, she's like a drunk whose eyes are closed and cannot be opened. Uh, Israel's in the dark and so she cannot see. Isaiah 29 gives this elaborate description of Israel's blindness. Isaiah 42, we read part of it this morning, but later on in that chapter it identifies the real problem with Israel. Israel is supposed to be the Lord's servant, but Israel is deaf and blind. Verses 18 and 19 of that chapter, the Lord says, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant. So here Israel, the Lord's servant, is blind. And you know what good is a blind servant? A blind servant can't do the master's work. The Lord wants His servant Israel to be a light to the nations and to open the eyes of the blind in the nations. But before they can do that, they must be brought out of darkness themselves. They must first be given eyes to see. And that's what Isaiah 42 is about. It's describing Israel's condition, her blindness. Blindness plays a key role in several Old Testament stories. And that's because eyes in Scripture are instruments of judgment and discernment. Our physical eyes are, again, parabolic, analogous to the eyes of our hearts, which are supposed to see into reality with insight, with depth, with perception. Uh, eyes are connected with wisdom. Throughout the Old Testament, therefore, physical blindness becomes a symbol of dullness and obtuseness in spiritual things. And so, for example, in the story of Isaac, uh, Isaac becomes blind, and with the loss of his physical sight, he loses the ability to make sound judgments and good decisions. It's the same with Eli. His eyes grow dim, and he loses the ability to judge properly, the ability to act in wisdom. In the book of Leviticus, we find that under the law, blindness disqualified a man from serving in the priesthood. That's because priests had to be able to see, to make judgments. They had to be discerning. And of course, all of this goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and his bride into sin, when the woman saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food and a delight to the eyes, she took and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. Because their eyes wrongly judged. Yes, in one sense their eyes were open, but in a deeper sense their eyes were blinded. And the eyes of the whole human race have been blind ever since. We are blind by nature. Blindness is the problem. It's one perspective on the whole problem of our sin and the curse. Our eyes are dead. We cannot see. We cannot see reality for what it is. But the good news, the good news here and throughout the Scriptures, the good news is that Jesus has come to open blind eyes, to give sight to the sightless, to resurrect dead eyes. Indeed, Psalm 146, verse 8 says, 
the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. There's a one-verse summary of the whole Gospel. Well, that's what this miracle is going to show us here. That Jesus, as the Lord incarnate, has come to open blind eyes, to rescue us, to save us from the darkness of our own blindness. So let's look at this miracle. What happens here? How does it unfold? Jesus comes to Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida means house of fishing or house of fish. Uh, It is the hometown of Peter and some of the other disciples. And so this is a kind of homecoming for them. Uh, These people, therefore, know of Jesus. They know that some of their... um, Local uh, young men have gone out to follow Jesus. And when Jesus shows up in Bethsaida, uh, the crowd brings to Jesus a blind man. And they beg Jesus to touch this man. Uh, They know that Jesus has healed uh, with mere touch already in his ministry. Uh, But let me throw in a little side note here. Something that I think is significant that we see throughout Mark's Gospel. People don't come to Jesus unless they are brought. How do people get to Jesus? How do they get connected to Jesus? How do they come to trust into Jesus and receive His healing? People don't come to Jesus unless they're brought. Evangelism, that is the spreading of this good news about Jesus, takes place in community. It's relational. The people here in the town of Bethsaida love this blind man. And so they want their blind friend to be healed. They can see Jesus with their eyes, and so they bring the one who can't to Jesus for healing. They know Jesus can help, and so they bring him to Jesus. And so that's part of what we're all called to do, bringing people to Jesus. And that happens best in the context of a community, as it does here. Now again, they want Jesus to touch this man. Uh, They know Jesus has healed by mere touch already in his gospel. Jesus is not going to do it that way this time. However, while He doesn't heal with a mere touch, His hands do feature prominently in this story. It's interesting how many times Mark mentions the hands of Jesus. Jesus takes this man by the hand to lead him out of the village. And then at each stage of the miracle, Jesus lays His hands on the blind man. Now, why do we have this? Why does Mark tell us that Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of town? Well, it's interesting. We read this part of Isaiah 42 this morning, the first part of Isaiah 42. It describes what the Lord will do, what the Lord will do through His servant. That one known as the servant of the Lord. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 42, the Lord says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. The Lord says, I will take you by the hand. Then in the very next verse, it says His servant will open blind eyes. Jesus here is fulfilling Isaiah 42. He does what the Lord says He will do. He does what God promised the servant of the Lord would do. He takes people by the hand. He opens blind eyes. Jesus here is enacting the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is the script. Jesus is the actor. He, 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 he acts it out. He puts it into reality. He puts Himself into that prophecy when He takes this man by the hand. Jesus then spits on the man's eyes. Now, we saw this back in Mark chapter 7. Uh, we saw Jesus there take, uh, take aside a, a man in the same way He takes this man aside. and He does this in uh, semi-private at least. 
Uh, and there in Mark chapter 7, Jesus spit on the deaf mute's tongue. And we saw how that was really a baptism. Jesus baptized the man's tongue, and his baptism brought the man's dead tongue back to life. But again, I want to point out how odd this is. You know, this one, you want to say this? Okay, don't try this at home, especially kids, all right? This, you know, we're to imitate Jesus, but, you know, don't take that too literally, all right? <laughs> at least when it comes to this kind of thing, all right? Uh, why does Jesus spit? Uh, that seems un- uncouth and sort of uh, gross to us. Uh, but uh, what does spitting mean? If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, there's actually a whole theology of spit, a whole theology of spitting. I won't go into all of that uh, for you. Uh, spitting on someone is clearly an insult, not a blessing usually. Uh, in fact, Leviticus 15.8, I'm sure you were just reading this in your devotions the other day. Leviticus 15.8 says, spitting on someone made them unclean. That's how things function under the law. And we, we've seen in previous studies in Mark why that's the case. What comes out of sinful man is sin. What flows out of a man's corrupt heart is corruption. What comes out of a man's dead heart is death. Unclean people spread uncleanness. That's how it works under the law. So if you're unclean within, what comes out of you, including your spit, is unclean. That's how it worked under the law in ancient Israel. That's not how it works for Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't have a dead heart. He doesn't have a corrupt nature. What flows out of Jesus is not death, but a river of living water. Jesus has life, not death, within. He has life, not death, flowing out of His heart. And so when Jesus spits here, it brings life, not death. The spit here, in fact, symbolizes the Spirit, I would suggest. That's what John 7 says, that this river of living water flowing out of the heart of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And so here, the Spirit of Jesus begins to affect this man's healing. But Jesus doesn't just spit. He goes through another kind of ritualized action as well. One that would have been very familiar to any Israelite of the day. He lays hands on the man. Now this rite of laying hands on another, how should that be understood? Uh, All throughout the Old Testament we see this. Whenever one lays hands on another, it brings about union. It forms a bond between the two. And so, for example, when uh, an Israelite would take an animal to the temple for sacrifice, the first thing he would do is lay his hands on that animal. And in doing so, he would make that animal his representative. He would insert himself into that animal, as it were, so that now what happens to the animal happen to him. As the animal draws near to God and is put to death for the sins of the worshiper, and then is glorified on the altar fire, by proxy, all those things are happening to the worshiper. By laying his hands on that animal, he has made that animal his representative. So when the animal is brought into God's presence, that's a substitute. That's a representative for the, for the worshiper who's not yet allowed into God's presence. So when Jesus lays hands on this man, what is he doing? He's forming a bond between the blind man and himself. He is uniting himself to this man. Then Jesus gives the blind man an eye exam. He asks this man, what do you see? In other words, can you read the big letters on the eye chart? This is what makes this miracle so unique. 
This man is not healed instantly, as in all the other cases of Jesus' miracle. There is a healing, but it's only a partial healing. Some of this man's sight is restored, but he's definitely not back to 2020 vision. His sight is not fully restored. He sees men, this is how he answers Jesus' question. He says he sees men, but they're fuzzy. His vision has been restored, but it lacks clarity. The men look like trees walking. All right, and you know, if you're like me, you can't help but think of the Ents from Lord of the Rings. When I think of trees walking, that's what I think of. Now, why trees? Why, why do people look like trees to him? Why doesn't it just say he could see, but things were blurry? Why does Mark specifically include this detail that men look like trees? That's the kind of question we've got to ask. We've got to dig into the details here. All throughout Scripture, men are compared to trees. And every Israelite knew this because every Israelite sang the Psalms and right there in the very first Psalm, what is the blessed man like? The blessed man is like a tree planted by rivers of living water. The blessed man, the man who keeps God's law, is like a tree bearing its fruit in every season. Men are like trees. Another example of this, uh, there's a vision in Daniel chapter 4 of the great emperor of the day, Nebuchadnezzar. And in the vision, the, there's this great tree that is cut down, and we find that tree really represents Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is that tree that's cut down. In Isaiah chapter 11, there is tree imagery used for Jesus. It talks about Jesse's fallen tree, the family tree of Jesse. You know, that's the family tree that produced David, the greatest king in Israel's history. David and Solomon came from Jesse's family tree. That tree is cut down in judgment. But Isaiah 11 says, out of Jesse's tree, out of that fallen stump that uh, was Jesse's family tree, the Messiah will be like a branch coming forth and the tree will regrow. Uh, so Jesus is like a tree. Uh, now I'm sure there is some deeply significant reason here why the blind man sees men as trees walking. Uh, I probably should have gotten together with Dr. Lightheart this week so he could tell me what it is. Uh, I don't know that I can go much further than what I just gave you, this connection between men and trees. But there is one thing that I, I do think I can uh, point out here that I think is interesting and fits with the story. If trees are symbols of men in the Old Testament, and this man sees men as trees, what it really means is this man sees in symbol before he sees in reality. He sees symbols before he sees reality. And in a way, you know, that's how God designed history to work. Think about that whole Old Covenant era, the whole history of Israel. What did God give to Israel to prepare them for the coming redemption? He gave to them a system of symbols. Things like a temple, animal sacrifices, a priesthood. And priestly vestments with, with gemstones and, and so forth. He gave them all of these symbols. But those symbols only allowed the Israelites to see the future coming kingdom in a fuzzy way. Only when Jesus, the reality, comes and lives and dies and rises again will the kingdom come in to sharp focus. Colossians 2 gets at this. Colossians 2 says that the law was a shadow of things to come. The substance is Christ. 
The old covenant symbols, those were shadows of things to come. They were fuzzy. You know, that's how shadows are. They're kind of fuzzy. You just kind of see the general outline of something. You don't see all its features. Now, in Christ, the substance, the reality has come. Hebrews 10 basically says the same thing. Hebrews 10.1 says, The law was a shadow of the good things to come. The law contained a shadow, a set of symbols of coming realities. Shadowy symbols that fuzzily foreshadowed what was to come in Christ. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. A fuzzy symbolic picture of what God would do in history in the fullness of time. In history, first come the symbols, then the substances. First the symbols, then the realities to which they point. And so it is with this man's healing. The new covenant has not yet come in its fullness. Jesus has not yet died and risen and poured out His Spirit. So at this point, everyone, including the disciples, the best they can do is see in a fuzzy, blurry way. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus goes on to complete this man's healing. He lays His hands on the man again. Lays his hands on the man's eyes and Mark tells us his sight was restored and he saw everyone clearly. This is what we need to understand. The two stages of this miracle correspond to two stages in the conversation that followed. That's really, I think, the key to understanding this miracle story is how it fits with the two stages of the conversation between Jesus and His disciples that comes immediately afterwards. See, what happens next? Jesus and His disciples go to Caesarea Philippi. And on the road is how my translation has it. But really, it's on the way. They're on the way. And remember, the whole Gospel of Mark is about the way. Mark introduces the way of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 2. We're about to find out where that way leads. On the way, Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? In other words, what what do the latest Gallup polls say about my identity? How are we polling these days? What are people saying about me? And we get sort of a multiple choice list of answers. There are some who agree with Herod that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist back from the grave. Others say he's like Elijah, because the prophet Malachi said that Elijah would return before God brought in his new age. Still others say he's like one of the prophets, one in a long line of prophets that God gave to his people. And certainly they were right to see that Jesus had a lot in common with the other prophets, prophets like Moses and Jeremiah and indeed every other prophet. But those answers the people give, those answers the people give, while they are true to a degree, They're still fuzzy. They lack clarity. They're just shadowy outlines of the reality. They're true, but they're inadequate. They see something special about Jesus. They've identified something true about Jesus. But their picture of who Jesus is is still way too fuzzy. It's lacking clarity. Well, then Jesus asks His disciples this ultimate question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives... The correct answer. An answer that's technically correct. He says, you are the Christ. Christ, that means anointed. The Hebrew term would have been Messiah. 
To call Jesus the Christ means He is the Anointed One. It's a term that describes an office. It's, it's really a title. Peter is saying to Jesus, you are God's promised King. You are the Anointed King. The one foretold in passages like Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of God's Anointed King and how God's Anointed King will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. When Peter says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're that guy. You're the one we've been singing about all these centuries in Psalm 2. You're the one who has come to be enthroned by God and reign at His right hand and rule the nations with a rod of iron. You're that guy. And Peter's probably thinking, I can't wait to see the nations dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, just like Psalm 2 says. That's Peter's kingdom vision. Now Peter's correct to a point. Jesus is that guy. He is the Christ, the anointed one. But see, if the crowd at this point has 2400 vision, Peter's maybe got, you know, 2040 vision. It's still not 2020. His vision of who Jesus is is still blurry. And here's why. Here's why Peter still has myopia. Why he's still half blind. Peter's got the correct category. He's got the right label. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. But as we're going to see in just a moment, Peter fills that category with the wrong content. Right category, wrong content. He's got the fuzzy shape of who Jesus is. He's the Christ, but it lacks clarity because he doesn't understand what it really means to be the Christ, the promised King. Peter's being healed, but he's still only in stage one of his healing. Well, Jesus wants to open his eyes further. He wants to bring clarity to Peter. He wants Peter to see more sharply what Messiahship really means. And so what does he do? Verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and then rise on the third day. Now Peter just finds this utterly impossible. If Jesus is the Christ, then He can't be destined for suffering and death. Peter finds the idea of a suffering Christ repulsive, even impossible. Peter's thinking about a kingdom, a kingdom without a cross. That whole category of Christ has been filled with content that would make the cross unthinkable. His view of Messiahship, again, it's all Psalm 2, reigning king, a king conquering the nations. It's not at all Psalm 22. Psalm 22 talks about a suffering servant of the Lord. One who has to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One who is despised and rejected of men. One, one whose hands and feet are pierced. For Peter, Christ means Psalm 2. It doesn't mean Psalm 22. Peter's so confident in his kingdom vision, he thinks he sees so clearly that he actually scolds Jesus. He rebukes Jesus for talking about his suffering. Peter's thinking, no, this is not the way the story goes. The script can't read that way. This is not what we signed up for. This is not what God promised. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter. Jesus is going to bring Messiahship into focus. Yes, Jesus is the anointed King. But He is a King who will enter into His reign through suffering. And until you see that, until you see that the Kingdom comes through the cross, 
Jesus is still blurry and out of focus for you. Until you see the cross as the center of His kingdom. The way in which His kingdom is established, you're missing. Peter scolds Jesus because he's thinking kings don't rule by dying. If you're going to be a great king, kings don't get killed. Kings do the killing. A great king isn't one who serves others. He subjugates others. That's how you define kingship. That's how you measure the greatness of the king by how many people he can kill, how many people he can enslave. And Jesus, you're talking about just the opposite. So Jesus is giving to Peter an altogether different view of kingship, an altogether different view of the kingdom, an altogether different view of what God is going to do in the world, in history. It's interesting, too, that every time Jesus does a miracle, it seems like, in Mark's Gospel up to this point, He says, shh, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody. I did this miracle for you, but don't let anybody know. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus warns them to not tell anyone. But then look at verse 32. When he starts talking about the cross, Jesus speaks openly. There's no secret here. Jesus is talking loudly, openly. You could say He spoke plainly. How has Jesus been speaking in Mark's Gospel up to this point? It's always in parables. It's in these cryptic riddles, these puzzles that are hard to understand. Jesus is not talking in parables anymore. There's nothing cryptic about this. Now He's talking in a straightforward, literal way. He means a literal cross and literal chief priests and rulers and scribes who will will have Him nailed to that cross. He's not talking in puzzles or riddles or parables anymore. Nothing is veiled. He says plainly, I'm going to be crucified. He openly reveals to them what it means for Him to be the Christ. He just lays it out for them. He he hasn't said anything that could be easily understood to this point in Mark's Gospel. Now He does as soon as He starts talking about the cross. Peter certainly expected Jesus to march on Jerusalem to go to the capital city. He expected Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to establish His rule there the way that King David did. You know, Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He'll set up His kingdom. And from there, it will move out to this worldwide empire. Jesus is the new David. That's how it's got to unfold. That's what Peter's expecting. Peter doesn't expect Jesus to go to Jerusalem and end up getting killed. That just can't be right. For Peter, if Jesus gets crucified, that means the mission failed and the kingdom is aborted. But for Jesus... Getting crucified means the mission is fulfilled and the kingdom is inaugurated. Jesus sees the cross as what will bring the kingdom in, not indicate that the kingdom has failed. Through the rest of this Gospel, we're going to see this now as we go through the rest of Mark's Gospel. Through the rest of this Gospel, Jesus is going to lead His disciples through the second stage of healing their blindness. Until finally they see not men walking as trees, but a man hanging on a tree, and then all becomes clear. Then the kingdom comes into focus. The truth of who Jesus is and how He reigns and how His kingdom comes and how His kingdom works will come into focus. The whole first half of Mark's Gospel has been building up to Peter's confession where Peter says, you are the Christ. The rest of Mark's Gospel is going to unpack that confession 
and it's going to unpack that confession in terms of the cross. It's going to be the cross that dominates the rest of Mark's Gospel. The first stage of healing their blindness is done. They can see Jesus is the Christ. Now the second stage of their healing has to be done. They have to see He is a crucified Christ. That's the way Mark's Gospel works. This is the center. This is the pivot. This is the turning point of the whole thing. Now let me... Wrap this up by giving you just a few more thoughts here. This is, I don't know if these are just observations or applications. I don't know how to frame this. This is just stuff you ought to take away from this passage, from this text. First, understand this. Recognizing who Jesus is requires a miracle. A miracle of grace. Our hearts are blind. We can't see who Jesus is unless Jesus opens the eyes of our hearts to see Him. For who he is as the crucified king who in sacrificial love laid down his life to rescue his bride from the clutches of sin, death, and Satan. You see that it's only because God has opened your hearts by his grace. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we may know the hope of his calling and the riches of our glorious inheritance and the greatness of his power towards us through Christ whom he raised from the dead. That opening of the eyes of our hearts. That bringing us to faith and growing us in the faith. That is God's work from beginning to end. That's why Paul says it a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not something you conjure up yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even your faith is God's gift. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Him alone for salvation... It's only because God has opened your eyes to see your sin and to see who Jesus is and what He's done about it. Your faith is not your contribution to your salvation, that little part that you do. No, even your faith is a gift of God's grace. God Himself, just as we'd say physical sight is a gift of God, so spiritual sight is a gift of God. It's God's doing, making us to see clearly who God is and who Jesus is. Faith is a gift of God's grace. He makes the blind to see. And so if you believe, give Him thanks. Give Him praise. But second, recognize this seeing, this enlightenment comes in stages, not all at once. You know, here we see the disciples are still in training. They see, but they don't see clearly yet. And of course, we're still in process too. We're still on the way to full sight. First, the disciples have to see that Jesus is the King. Then they will see that He is the King who suffers and dies. They will come to see that He is the King who rules through sacrificial love and service. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus doesn't reign in spite of being crucified. Rather, through the cross, His reign is established. The cross determines the shape of His kingdom. That's what Peter could not see. That's what Peter couldn't see. That's why we move in chapter 8, verse 31, right around there. We move from Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, then immediately Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and die. As soon as Peter confesses you're the Christ, Jesus begins to explain what that means. And he explains it in terms of the cross. Jesus has got to reprogram his disciples. And you know what? Jesus has got to reprogram us as well. 
Because no matter how much we talk about this, hey, we're Americans. And we somehow think we have this, you know, this divine right to a life of comfort and ease without having to suffer or pay any kind of price for being a Christian. We think Christianity, practice of the Christian faith, ought to come easy. Not so. Not so. It comes through the cross. You know, there are lots of people today who believe in God. Most people today will tell you they believe in God. Most people, at least where we live, will even tell you they believe in Jesus. But their vision of who God is is fuzzy. They don't have clarity about who Jesus is. And so as soon as you start to talk about who God really is, or as soon as you start to talk about who Jesus is with more sharpness and more clarity, as soon as you really start to talk about what the Gospel is and what the requirements of discipleship are, as soon as you start to bring those into focus, what happens? People start to balk at it. They don't like that. They don't want to hear that. They like God as kind of this vague, undefined thing. They want Jesus to remain fuzzy around the edges. Because then we can say we like Jesus and keep filling that with content that's comfortable and easy for us. That suits us. That's the great sin of our age, at least here in the Bible Belt. This is what we do. That's what Bible Belt Christianity amounts to. A fuzzy Jesus. You know, we keep Him fuzzy so we can keep on defining Him however we want. To make Him suit our desires, preferences, chosen lifestyle, what have you. People today, just as much as Peter, want a crossless faith. A kingdom without a cross. But we can't do that. We can't do that. We've got to have clarity about the cross. It's the cross that brings everything else into focus. When the cross is brought into focus, everything else in life starts to fall into place. And that really brings me to one final thing I'll say here. Clarity about Jesus comes not only when we see His cross, but when we take up our own Taking up your cross, we might say, is the great opener of eyes. Obedience is the great opener of eyes. Taking up your cross brings everything into focus. As we suffer faithfully with Jesus, putting sin to death, bearing the shame that often comes with being a faithful follower of Jesus, bearing the burdens of others as a form of cross-bearing, as we do these things, We've matured. We've become more like Jesus. And not only do we see Jesus more clearly with our own eyes, but we start to look like Jesus to others. So they get a better picture of who Jesus is just by looking at us. Hebrews 5.8 says, Jesus learned obedience from what He suffered. That is to say, Jesus matured as a man through a life of cross-bearing. As we take up our crosses, as we suffer in union with Him, as we die to ourselves and seek to serve others. The glory of who Jesus is comes into ever sharper focus. When His cross becomes our own, then we start to see fully and sharply. The more we obey, the more faithfully we obey Jesus, the sharper our vision gets. The more we become like Jesus, the more we mature. Jesus says here, the Son of Man must suffer. He must. There's nothing optional about it. He must. There is a kind of divine necessity to it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Jesus makes it clear beyond all doubt that the must of suffering applies to the disciples just as much as to Himself. Christ is only Christ in virtue of His suffering, 
Likewise, the disciple is only a disciple insofar as he shares in his Lord's suffering. See, if you don't follow Jesus on the way of the cross, you're really not following Jesus at all. You either follow Jesus in the way of the cross or you don't follow Him. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would bring Jesus into razor-sharp focus in our lives. That we would not see Him just as a man walking like a tree, but that we would see the glory of Him hanging on a tree. For there at the cross, He accomplished our salvation full and free. Oh Lord, we know that if we see Jesus for who He is, and we trust in Him with the eyes of our hearts wide open to Him, to His glory, it's not because we have figured it out. It's because You have given us eyes to see. And so Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be continually opened more and more, that You might continually sharpen our spiritual vision, that You would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh Lord, we pray, may our eyes see Jesus. May our ears hear Jesus. May our mouths praise Jesus. May our hands serve Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.